while others seem to be chopping at the branches of lack of love of nature and global warming that we're going to strike at the root of the problem by instead of just reading Walden we'll read both Walden and the journals of Thoreau so by a strike at the root of the problem we're going to read now 1857 in the journals of best of the journals of best of Thoreau journals <laughs> hmm now we're all the way up to 1857, and Thoreau is 40 years old. The most portentous event was Thoreau's meeting with John Brown of Kansas. He was introduced to him by a zealous young Harvard graduate, F.B. Sanborn, who later devoted much of his life to Thoreau's literary remains. Sanborn was a paying dinner guest in the Thoreau household, and when Brown visited Concord looking for support, Sanborn brought Brown to him. Thoreau was not much impressed at the beginning, but later he watched Brown's fury career with rising interest and admiration. Thoreau again visited Cape Cod and the Maine wilderness. The journal is extensive and exact. Do you think we have to visit, uh, revisit Cape Cod in a Thoreauvian sense as well as Maine? And to complete our study of Thoreau, we have to Go both to Concord, to Maine and Cape Cod, as well as Concord. <laughs> huh. January 7th, 1857. I should not be ashamed to have a shrub oak for my coat of arms. Uh, coat of arms. So his co coat of arms is the shrub oak. Uh -huh. January 11th. The other day a man came just to get me to run a line in the woods. This is the usual request. Do you know where one end of it is? He, I ask. It was the Stratton lot. No, said he. I don't know either end. That is what I want to find. Do you know either of the next sides of the lot? Thinking a moment, he answered, No. Well, do you know any one side of the whole lot or any corner? After a little hesitation, he said he did not. Here, then, was a woodlot of half a dozen acres, well enough described in a deed dated 1777. Courses and distances given, but he could not tell exactly in what part of the universe any particular part of it was, but he expected me to find out. Thoreau is a professional surveyor. <laughs> this was what he understood by running. On the strength of this deed, he had forbidden a man to chop wood somewhere. For some years past, I have partially offered myself as a lecturer and have been advertised as such several years. 
yet I have had but two or three invitations to lecture in a year, and some years none at all. I congratulate myself on having been permitted to stay at home thus. I'm so much richer for it. He's saying that he didn't have much lectures. He was richer because he didn't have too many. <laughs> so he shouldn't lecture too much. Uh -huh. January 13th, I hear one thrumming a guitar below stairs. Reminds me of moments that I have lived. What a comment on our life is the least strain of music. It lifts me up above all the dust and mire of the universe. Uh, I soar or hover with clean skirts over the field of my life. It is ever life within life in concentric circles. The field wherein I toil or rust at any time is at the same time the field for such different kinds of life. The farmer's boy or hired man has an instinct which tells him as much indistinctly, and hence his dreams and his restlessness, hence even if it is that he wants money to realize his dreams with. The identical field where I am leading my humdrum wife. Let but a strain of music be heard there. It seemed to be the field of some unrecorded crusade or tournament, the thoughts of which excites in us an ecstasy of joy. The way in which I am affected by this faint thrumming advertises me that there is still some health and immortality in the springs of me. The faint thrumming. You think it's the music of the spheres in a distance? Mm -hmm. What an eclipser is the sound of I, who but lately came and went and lived under a dish cover, live now under the heavens. I, it releases me. It burst my bonds. Almost all, perhaps all, our life is speaking imperatively. A stereotype despair. In other words, we never at any time realize the full grandeur of our destiny. We forever and ever and habitually underrate our fate. Talk of infidels. Why all the race of man, except in the rarest moments when they are lifted above themselves by an ecstasy, are infidels. With the very best disposition, what does my belief amount to? This poor, timid, unenlightened, thick-skinned creature, what can it believe? I am, of course, hopelessly ignorant and unbelievingly unbelieving until some divinity stirs within me. Ninety-nine one-hundredths of our lives we are mere hedgers and ditchers, but from time to time we meet with reminders of our destiny. Hmm. This is January 13th, uh, 
about thrumming, one thrumming a guitar. I hear one thrumming a guitar below stairs. It reminds me of moments that I have lived. What a comment on our life is the least strain of music. It lifts me up above all the dust and mire of the universe. I soar over with clean skirts over the field of my life. Uh, it is ever life within life in concentric spheres. The field wherein I toil or rust at any time is at the same time the field for such different kinds of life. The farmer's boy or hired man has an instinct which tells him as much indistinctly and hence his dreams and his restlessness. Hence, even if it is that he wants money to realize his dreams with, the identical field where I am leading my humdrum wife. What but a strain of music be heard there is seen to be the field of some unrecorded crusade or tournament, the thought of which excites in us in an ecstasy of joy. Mm -hmm. In analyzing ecstasies of joy. From music, I suppose, on the way in which I am affected by this faint thump thrumming, the faint thrumming of the ecstasy of joy. Hmm. Advertises me that there is still some health and immortality in the springs of me. What an elixir is the sound! That's an elixir. I who but lately came and went and lived under a dish cover, live now under the heavens. It releases me, it bursts my bonds. Almost all, perhaps all my life, is speaking comparatively a stereotyped despair. In other words, we never at any time realize the full grandeur of our destiny. We forever and ever and habitually underrate our fate. Talk of infidels. Why all of the race of man, except in the rarest moments when they are lifted above themselves by an ecstasy, are infidels. Technically, if you're not lifted above yourself in ecstasy, you are an infidel. With the very best disposition, what does my belief amount to, this poor, timid, unenlightened, thick-skinned creature? What can it believe? I am, of course, hopelessly ignorant, unbelieving, until some divinity stirs within me. Ninety-nine one-hundredths of our lives we are mere hedgers and ditchers. But from time to time we meet with reminders of our destiny. January 13th, eighteen. 57. January 27th, the most poetic and truest account of objects is generally by those who first observe them or the discoverers of them, whether a sharper perception and curiosity in them led to the discovery or the greater novelty more inspired their report. Uh, accordingly, I love most to read the accounts of a country, its natural productions and curiosities by those who first settled it, and also the earliest, though often unscientific, 
writers on natural science. So, yeah. so the first one's there, the first account. Hmm. By February 8th, again, again, I congratulate myself on my so-called poverty. I was almost disappointed yesterday to find $30 in my desk, which I did not know that I possessed. <laughs> $30 is a lot of money back then. <laughs> Though now I should be sorry to lose it. The week that I go away to lecture, however much I may get for it, is unspeakably cheap and the preceding and succeeding days are a mere slooping, sloping down and up from it. In the society of many men are in the midst of what is called success. I find my life of no account, and my spirits rapidly fall. I would rather be the barrenest pasture-lying fallow, then cursed with the compliments of kings, then be the sulfurous and accursed desert where Babylon once stood. But when I have only of rustling oak leaf or the faint metallic cheap of a tree sparrow for variety in my winter walk, my life becomes continent and sweet as the kernel of a nut. I would rather hear a single shrub oak leaf at the end of a wintry glade rustle of its own accord at my approach than receive a shipload of stars and garters from the strange kings and peoples of the earth. And now another friendship is ended. I do not know what has made my friend, probably Lydian Emerson, doubt me. But I know that in love there is no mistake, and that every estrangement is well-founded. But my destiny is not narrowed, but if possible, the broader for it. The heavens withdraw and arc themselves higher. I am sensible now not only of a moral, but even a Grand physical pain, such as gods may feel, about my head and breast a certain ache and fullness. The spreading of a tie, it is not my work nor thine. It is no accident that we mind. It is only the words of fate that are affecting. I know of no eons or periods, no life and death, but these meetings and separations. My life is like a stream that is suddenly dammed and has no outlet, but it rises the higher up the hills that shut it in and will become a deep silent lake. My life is like a stream that is suddenly dammed and has no outlet but it rises the higher up the hills that shut it in and will become a deep and silent lake. Hmm. 
Certainly there is no event comparable for grandeur with the eternal separation, if we may conceive it so. From a being that we have known, I become in a degree sensible of the meaning of finite and infinite. What a grand significance the word, quote, never acquires. With one with whom we have walked on high ground, we cannot deal on any lower ground ever after. We have tried for so many years to put each other to this immortal use and have failed. Undoubtedly, our good Jenny, Jeannie, have mutually found the material unsuitable. We have hitherto paid each other the highest possible compliment. We have recognized each other constantly as divine, have afforded each other that opportunity to live that no other wealth or kindness can afford. And now, for some reason, and appreciable by us, it has become necessary for us to withhold this mutual aid. Perchance there is none beside who knows us for a god, and none whom we know for such. Each man and woman is a veritable god or goddess, but to the mass of their fellows, disguised. There is only one in each case who sees through the disguise. Mm. Only one. Each man and woman is a veritable god or goddess, but to the mass of their fellows disguised, there is only one in each case who sees through the disguise. That one who does not stand so near to any man as to see the divinity in him is truly alone. I am perfectly sad at parting from you. I could better have the earth taken away from under my feet than the thought of you from my mind. One while I think that some great injur injury has been done with which you are implicated, again that you are no party to it. I feel that there may be incessant tragedies, that one may treat his fellow as a god, but receive somewhat less regard from him. I now almost for the first time fear this, yet I believe that in the long run there is no such inequality. We don't know if that's related to Gwydion Emerson. Gwydion oh. Emerson is I'm guessing the wife of Ralph Waldo Emerson. February 20th. I wish that there was in every town in some place accessible to the traveler instead of or beside the common directories a list of the worthies of the town in other words of those who are worth seeing <laughs> you could have a list of who's worth seeing in a town <laughs> so travelers can go meet them 
February 28th, it is a singular infatuation that leads men to become clergyman in regular or even irregular standing. I pray to be introduced to new men at whom I may stop short and taste their peculiar sweetness. But in the clergyman of, of the most liberal sort, I see no perfectly independent human nucleus, but I seem to see some indistinct scheme hovering about to which he has lent himself, to which he belongs. It is a very fine cobweb in the lower stratum of the air, which stronger wings do not even discover. Whatever he may say, he does not know that one day is as good as another. Whatever he may say, he does not know that a man's creed can never be written, that there are no particular expressions of belief that deserve to be prominent. He dreams of a certain sphere to be filled by him, something less in diameter than a great circle, maybe not greater than a hog's head. All the staves are got out, and his sphere is already hot. March 26. You take your walk some pretty cold and windy but sunny March day through rustling woods, perhaps glad to take shelter in the hollows on the south side of the hills or woods. When ensconced in some sunny and sheltered hollow, some just melted pool at its bottom as you recline on the fine withered edge sledge. <laughs> withered sledge in which the mice have had their galleries leaving it pierced with countless holes in our perchance perchance dreaming of spring there a single dry hard croak like a grating twig comes up from the pool just such is the earliest voice of the pools where there is a small Smooth surface of melted ice, bathing the bare button bushes, or water andromeda, or tufts of sledge. Such is the earliest voice of the liquid pools, hard and dry and grating. Unless you watch long and closely, not a ripple nor a bubble will be seen, and a marsh hawk will have to look sharp to find one. The notes of the croaking frog and the Highloads are not only contemporary with, but analogous to the blossoms of the skunk cabbage and white maple. Are not March and November gray months? Question mark. Are not March and November gray months? Uh -huh. I don't know. <laughs> March 28th, often I can give the truest and most interesting account of any adventure I have had or after years have elapsed, for then I am not confused, only the most significant facts surviving in my memory. <laughs> Indeed, all that continues to interest me after such a lapse of time is sure to be pertinent. I may safely record all that I remember. Do you think that events should be aged a bit so only the pertinent ones will bubble up? 
the significant facts. <laughs> April 7th at sundown, I went out to gather bayberries to make tallow of. Holding a basket beneath, I rubbed them off into it between my hands and so got about a quart, to which was added enough to make about three pints. Uh -huh. They are interesting little gray berries. These are bayberries. Clustered close about the short bare twigs just below the last year's growth. The berries have little prominences like those of an orange skunk encased with tallow. And the tallow also filling the interstitches down to the nut. They require a great deal of boiling to get out all the tallow. The mo most case, the out, out to most case, soon melted off. But the inmost part I do not get even after many hours of boiling. The oily part rose to the top, making it look like a savory black broth, which smelled just like balm and other herb tea. I got about a quarter of a pound by weight from these, say, three pints of berries, and more yet remained. Boil a great while, let it cool, then skim off the tallow from the surface, melt again, and strain it. When I got what I got was more yellow than what I have seen in the shops. <laughs> the small portion cooled in the form of small corns, nuggets I call them, which I picked them out from amid the berries. Flat hemispherical or a very pure yellow, lemon yellow, and these needed no straining. The berries were left black and massed together by the remaining tallow. I don't know. I'm not familiar with bayberry picking <laughs> or processing. April 23rd. I saw at Daniel Ricketson's a young woman, Miss Kate Brady, 20 years old, her father an Irishman, a worthless fellow, her mother a smart Yankee. The daughter formerly did sewing, but now keeps school for a livelihood. She was born at the Brady House, I think, in Freetown, where she lived till 12 years old and helped her father in the field. There she rode horse to plow and was knocked off the horse by apple tree boughs and kept sheep, caught fish, etc., let her a girl or woman express so strong a love for nature. She purposes to return to that lonely ruin and dwell there alone. Here's a woman wants to dwell there alone. Since her mother and sister will not accompany her, says that she knows all about farming and keeping sheep and spinning and weaving, though it will puzzle her too shingle the old house. There she thinks she can, quote, live free. I was pleased to hear of her plans because they were quite cheerful and original, not professedly reformatory, but growing out of her love for Squires Brook and the Middleborough Ponds, a strong love for outward nature, is singularly rare among both men and women.
Scenery immediately about her homestead is quite ordinary, yet she appreciates and can use that part of the universe as no other being can, her own sex so tamely bred, only jeer at her for entertaining such an idea. But she has a strong head and a love for good reading, which may carry her through. It would be, but it would by no means discourage, yet particularly encourage her, for I would have her so strong as to succeed in spite of all ordinary discouragements. Uh -huh. This young woman is Miss Kate Brady. April 26. A great part of our troubles are literally domestic or originate in the house and from living indoors. Uh -huh great part of our troubles comes from being indoors. Uh, mm -hmm. Great part of our troubles are literally domestic originated in the house and from living indoors. Uh -huh. I could write an essay to be entitled Out of Doors, under, Undertake a Crusade Against Houses. <laughs> Maybe you should just live outdoors. What a different thing Christianity preached to the home house bred and to a party who lived out of doors. Also, a sermon is needed on the economy and economy of fuel. What right has my neighbor to burn ten cords of wood when I burn only one? Hmm. That's about the fuel issue about burning fuel. Mm -hmm. Thus robbing our half-naked town of this precious covering, he is he so much colder than I. It is expensive to maintain him in our midst. If some earn the salt of the partridge, are we certain that they earn the fuel of their kitchen and parlor? One man makes a little of the driftwood of the river and of the dead and refuge unremark unmarketable wood of the forest suffice, and nature rejoices in him. Another herod like requires ten cords of the best of young white oak or hickory, and he is commonly esteemed as a virtuous man. man. He who burns the most wood on his hearth is the least warm by the sight of it growing. Leave the trim wood lots to widows and orphan girls. What man tread gently through nature? Let us religiously burn stumps and worship in groves. Well, Christian vandals lay waste the forest temples to build miles of meeting houses and horse sheds and feed their box stoves. Uh -huh. 
May 3rd. Up and down the town, men and boys that are under subjection are polishing their shoes and brushing their go-to-meeting clothes. I, a descendant of Northmen, who worship Thor, spend my time worshiping neither Thor nor Christ. A descendant of the Northmen, who sacrificed men and horses, sacrificed neither men nor horses. I care not for Thor nor for the Jews. I sympathize not today with those who go to church in newest clothes and sit quietly in straight-back pews. I sympathize rather with the boy who has none to look after him, who borrows a boat and paddle and in common clothes sets out to explore these temporary vernal lakes. I meet such a boy paddling along under a sunny bank with bare feet and his pants rolled up against his knees, ready to leap into the water at a moment's warning. May 8. Within a week, I have had made a pair of corduroy pants, uh, which, which cost, when done, a dollar sixty. They are of that peculiar clay color, reflecting the light from portions of their surface. They have this advantage, that beside being very strong, they will look about as well three months whence as now, or as ill, some would say. Most of my friends are disturbed by my wearing them. I can get four or five pairs for what one ordinary pair would cost in Boston, and each of the former will last two or three times as long under the same circumstances. The tailor said that the stuff was not made in this country, that it was worn by the Irish at home, and now they would not look at it. But others would not wear it, durable and cheap as it is, because it is worn by the Irish. So, if you wear what the Irish wear, it's a lot less expensive. Moreover, I like the color on other accounts. Anything but black clothes. He likes the corduroy pants. May 27 p.m. to Hill. I hear the sound of fife and drum. The other side of the village, and am reminded that it is May training. Some thirty young men are marching in the streets to, in two straight sections, with each a very heavy and warm cap for the season. On his head, and a bright stripe down the legs of his pot, pantaloons and at their head marches two with white stripes down their pants, one beating a drum, the other blowing a fife. I see them all standing in a row by the side of the street in front of their captain's residence, with a dozen or more ragged boys looking on, but presently they all remove to the opposite side. As it were, with one consent, not being satisfied, with their former position, which probably had its disadvantages. Thus they march and strut the better part of the day, going into the tavern. 
two or three times to abandon themselves to unconstrained positions out of sight, and at night they may be seen going home singly with swelling breast. June 3rd. I have several friends and acquaintances who are very good companions in the house or for an afternoon walk, but whom I cannot make up my mind to make a longer excursion with, for I discover all at once that they are too gentlemanly in manners, dress, and all their habits. I see in my mind's eye that they wear black coats, considerably starched linen, glossy hats and shoes, and it is out of the question. It is a great disadvantage for a traveler to be a gentleman of this kind. He is too so ill-treated, only a prey to landlords. It would be too much of a circumstance to enter a strange town or house with such a companion. He could not travel incognito. He might get into the papers. You might get into the papers. You should travel as a common man. If such a one were set out to make a walking journey, this is how you make a walking journey, he would betray himself at every step. Everyone would see that he was trying an experiment as plainly as they see that a lame man is lame by his limping. The natives would bow to him. Another gentleman would invite him to ride. Conductors uh, would harm, warn him that this was a second-class car. And many would take him for a clergyman, so he would be continually pestered and balked and run upon. You would not see the natives at all. Instead of going in quietly at the back door and sitting by the kitchen fire, you would be shown into a cold parlor, there to confront a fireboard and excite a commotion in a whole family. The women would scatter at your approach and their husbands, <laughs> and sons would go right up to hunt their, hunt up their black coats, <laughs> for they all have them, and they are as cheap as dirt. You would go trailing your limbs along the highways, mere bait for copulent and inholders, as a pickerel's leg is trolled along a stream, and your part of the profits would be the frogs. <laughs> now you must be a common man. When you travel, you have to be a commoner. 
You must be a common man or at least travel as one. And then nobody will know that you are there and have been there. I would not undertake a sing simple ex pedestrian excursion with one of these because to enter a village or a hotel or a private house with such a one would be too great a circumstance and would create too great a stir. You could only go half as far with the same means, and for the price of board and lodgings would rise everywhere. <laughs> if you go too well dressed, it becomes expensive everywhere you go. So much you have to pay for wearing that kind of coat. Not that the difference is in the coat at all, for the character of the scurf is determined by that of the true liber beneath. Innkeepers, stablers, conductors, clergymen know a true wayfaring man at first sight and let him alone. It is of no use to shove your gaiter shoes a mile further than usual. Sometimes it is mere shiftlessness or want of originality that clothes wear them. Sometimes it is egotism that cannot afford to be treated like a common man. He's saying just be a commoner. <laughs> they wear the clothes. They wish to be at least fully appreciated by every stage driver and schoolboy. They would like well enough to see a new place, perhaps, but then they would like to be regarded as important per public personage. They would consider it a misfortune if their names were left out of the published list of passengers, because they came in the steerage and obscurity from which they might never emerge. He's talking on June 3rd on how to take a walking journey. Make sure they're not too gentlemanly when you take a companion, not too well-dressed. Uh -huh. June 12th. I have not found the white spruce yet. That's the whole entry. June, July 12. July 12. It would be worth the while, methinks, to make a map of the town with all the good springs on it, uh -huh. indicating whether they were cool, perennial, perennial copious, please, pleasantly located, etc. The farmer is want. The farmer is want to celebrate. Hmm. 
Farmers want to celebrate the virtues of someone on his own farm above all others. Some cool rills in the meadows should be remembered also. For some such in the deep, cold, grassy meadows are as cold as springs. I have sometimes drank warm and foul water, not knowing such cold streams were at hand. By many a stream I know where to look for the dipper or glass which some mower has left. When a spring has been allowed to fill up, to be cuddled by cattle, or muddied by cattle, or being exposed to the sun by cutting down the trees and bushes, to dry up, it affects me sadly, like an institution going to decay. Sometimes I, I see on one side the tub, uh, the tub overhang, with various wild plants and flowers, its edge almost completely concealed. Even from the searching eye, the white sand freshly cast up where the spring is bubbling in, Often I sit patiently by the spring I have cleaned out and deepened with my hands and see the foul water rapidly dissipated like a curling vapor and giving place to the cold and clear. Sometimes I can look a yard or more into a crevice under a rock towards the sources of a spring in a hillside and see it come cool and copious with incessant murmuring down to the light. There are a few more refreshing sights in hot weather. Hmm. 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 Well, we read the first half of... Uh, up to August in eighteen fifty seven. Read about the springs, how he needed a map of all the springs and how it's best to dress like a commoner when you're on a hike walking journey. So your expenses don't get too high. <laughs> and he liked to wear clothes like that cheaper clothes like the Irish wore, even though they, he says they're good, but they're just out of fashion. Corduroy pants, uh-huh. And he says some people burn too much wood. And he met this girl, Kate Brady, who was, wanted to live alone as a woman and liked nature. And he, and Mm. Mm. He said, my life is like a stream that is suddenly dammed and has no outlet, but it rises the higher up the hills that shut it in and will become a deep and silent lake. And he also 
from the faint thrumming, he gets into a state of ecstasy, of joy, and immortality of the springs. So we, we, uh, and his coat of arms is the shrub oak. This is the first half of 1857 in the best of, of the Rose Journals, edited with a foreword by Carl Buddy. Buddy is the professor of English at the University of Maryland. Thoreau mm-hmm. 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 kept from 1857 at the age of 20 and reached Harvard graduate until his death in 1862. At 44 years of age, Carl Body has made this one-volume selection, giving us the essence of the journals and showing us the range and diversity of Thoreau's outlook on life. In addition, following the pattern of the journals themselves, Mr. Body has provided headnotes on each year's selection, summarizing the important events in Thoreau's life according occurring during the year and noting the influence of them on his work. Today, Mr. Body notes in his intro forward to this volume, we recognize Thoreau as one of the great writers of the Western world. What he has to say, he says wisely, tartly, and his writing is both pure and lucid with a kind of plain elegance to it. And what his writing shows us is that man was made to be free. Thoreau insists that most American living with its meaninglessness round the dull work and noisy recreation is dreadful to endure. And man, free, is not only happier but better. The world of Thoreau was, of course, the world of Concord in its immediate vicinity, and it he traveled widely and observed deeply. He was thoroughly, thoroughly involved and wrote out a full experience. However, as these selections from the journal show, his was not a passive absorption in nature, but an overly intellectual activity. Civilized man made Thoreau uncomfortable, and the passage of years increased his separation from his fellow men. His criticism of men in the mass develops in the middle and late years of the journal. Yet the journal is chiefly a nature diary. The general tone is amicable. There is in it more light than heat. And housing his deepest feelings, his most private thoughts, the journal affords us a clear view of the man whose peculiar quality was his fresh insight into life in general, and whose eye of innocence offers a new view. Among Thoreau's works, besides his two books, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers and Walden, there was a considerable corpus of shorter pieces, including his famous essay on civil disobedience, the journal has always been least read because of its length and inaccessibility. Once for many readers, this one-volume selection from the journals will provide a new and stimulating source of Thoreau's writings. We read from the best of Thoreau's journals. Uh-huh the first half of 1857.